thanks for being here tonight. Uh, we are in the middle of a series in Ephesians, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul. And if you're not really familiar with the Bible, it's in the New Testament, which is the latter part of the Bible, uh, towards the end, after Galatians, right before Philippians. If you want to use the table of contents, you should be able to find it there. Uh, tonight we're looking at, we're just going through this chapter, uh, through this letter, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we started a couple of weeks ago. We're through chapter 1. Tonight we're starting chapter 2. So tonight I'm going to read for us Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Um, frankly, one of the best parts of the Bible. Uh, no pressure, Luke. But uh, it's a great part of the Bible, just a beautiful depiction of the gospel. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So the text is up here. You're welcome to read along, or you can open your own Bible or a mobile device and read there. But I'm going to read for us, then we'll pray, <coughs> and we'll jump right in. Okay? All right, let's go. Ephesians chapter 2. Here we go. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, let's ask God to help us understand this rightly. Our Father, again, we come to you and ask that you would grant to us tonight humility under your word. Um, your spirit has inspired this letter. And you intend it for our good and for our benefit. And we pray, Father, that that would be true of us tonight. And Lord, no matter where we are tonight spiritually, no matter where we are emotionally, no matter if we've had a, a week from hell, a terrible week, a week that we would rather forget, or a week that's really been relatively decent, or a week that's been tremendous, Father, no matter where we're coming from, we ask tonight that you would remind us again, or maybe for the first time, that you are a God of love. And that you love us not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, not because of how sweet and kind and nice we have been, but because you, in your wisdom, in your sovereignty, and in your good pleasure, choose to love us. Father, may that, may that ring true here tonight in our hearts and in our heads. We pray that it would not just be something that goes in my ear or out my mouth and in our ears and out the other, but that it would be something, a truth that is driven deep into our hearts, into our into our spiritual DNA by your Holy Spirit. And we, we confess that we don't believe these things so often. We confess that we live lives very often, day to day, where the gospel really is just a, another piece of information that we stow away on our hard drive. And it's not something that has a daily forceful impact on our lives. And we ask that Jesus that you would change that, that you would begin to do that or continue to do that even tonight. So bless this time together studying your word. We pray it in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. 
All right, Ephesians 2. So, um, when I was a younger guy, a young kid, fourth, fifth grade, uh, I hate to brag, but I was a pretty good spelling bee competitor. Uh, I, I see stunned looks on your faces. That's not good. But I was actually pretty decent. Uh, I was pretty good. In fact, I was probably the second best spelling bee competitor in my school. Uh, the only bad thing was the best guy in our school, um, his name was David Urban. And he's one of those guys that kind of embraced his inner nerd much younger than a lot of kind of nerds do. I didn't embrace my inner nerd until much later in life. But he embraced his inner nerd very early on. And this guy was, uh, literally, he's a genius. He got a 1600 on the SAT. Whatever the, when I was that age, 1600 was high as you could go. Whatever the highest is you can go, that's where David Urban was. And uh, this guy was a spelling bee machine. In fact, you know, ESPN now puts like the Scripps National Spelling Bee on TV, on national TV and broadcasting. Well, this is the days before that happened, but he finished fourth, like in the world, in the Spelling Bee, and he was in my little elementary school in Amarillo, Texas, in the mid to late 80s. And uh, so I was pretty good, and I would study for Spelling Bees, but I was studying words like, you know, 13. That's one of the words that I spelled right. Why are you laughing? I knocked a, a couple other contestants out. No, you're supposed to laugh. Uh, 13, that was a word I could do. Thought, like I thought of this, thought, that O-U-G-H-T. That can confuse people, but not me. I knocked that word out of the park. <laughs> David Urban, here's the words David Urban was spelling, and it's sick, but I actually do remember some of these words. And this was in fourth grade. Um, David Urban later on was spelling words like crustaceology, which is, by the way, the study of crustaceans. How dare you not know that? He was spelling words like a vivisepulture which is the act of burying someone alive. Hopefully that will never happen to any of us. Viva sepulcher. Solepsis. Um, he was spelling words that I still don't know what they mean. And the funny thing about those spelling bees is that David Urban, I mean, this guy was a spelling bee machine. And he would, if he didn't know, even if he knew, he would kind of, he's kind of cocky. Even as a fourth grader, he would pretend he didn't know and he would say something. Could you, isn't that French? Is that a French derivation? Could you use that in a sentence? And the funny thing about David Urban, though, was that he memorized all these words, all these words, and how to spell these words, but frankly, he had no idea what a lot of these words meant. He was unable to define them, to use them in context, but he could spell the word, gosh darn it. Now, listen, I think a lot of the time, those of us who have been in the church for a while, those of us who claim to be Christians, who profess faith in Jesus, um, we know a lot of words you know, there's a lot of words in the Christian lexicon, the Christian vocabulary, that, well, we might not be able to spell them, but we can at least say them. One of those words is gospel. Gospel. Now, that's a word that we say a lot here. If you've been at Christ Church for more than five minutes, hopefully you've heard that word. Uh, in fact, our main core value at Christ Church is the idea that the gospel changes everything. Gospel. That's a word most Christians can say something about or at least say that they've heard before. But a lot of the time, we don't know what it is. We can't define it. Just like David Urban couldn't define vivisepulture in fourth grade. Although he was a genius, he still wasn't that smart. Um, what we want to do tonight is think about defining this word. You know, there's a lot of little snippets in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that are just beautiful and wonderfully uh, condensed uh, snapshots of what the gospel is of how the gospel can be defined. And it's actually defined in various ways. They're sort of, it's sort of like looking at a diamond from different perspectives in the New Testament and in the Old. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, just happens to be 
one of those texts, where the gospel is, in, with, with sort of pristine clarity, defined for us. And that's what I want to look at with you tonight, just for a few minutes. We're going to think about the gospel defined, because Ephesians chapter 2 knocks it out of the park for us. Now, we've been looking at Ephesians for a couple of weeks, as I mentioned, and uh, we've learned that Ephesians was a letter that this guy, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, wrote to the church in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. It was a city that's now in Turkey a couple of thousand years ago, and these people, these Christians in the church in Ephesus and other churches in the area that received the letter were a minority in their culture, and they were trying to think through what it meant to be a believer in a place like ancient Rome where very, very few people had any notion that Jesus of Nazareth ever even lived, much less that he had died and been raised again from the dead, and that that changes everything about our world. And so they're dealing with persecution, they're dealing with suffering, they're dealing with <coughs> new theological questions, they're dealing with the renewal that Jesus had brought them. And so Paul, because he was a good pastor of these people and he had planted this church, wrote this letter. And then this letter was read and passed around to other churches. A lot of churches re read this letter 2,000 years ago. And that's one of the great things about Ephesians we've seen. It's a, it's a letter that's intended for, for everyday people, for everyday Christians, for everyday churches. Uh, it's a general letter. It's a, le it's a letter that's relevant in the 14th century, in the 1st century, and in the 21st century. And that's one of, one of the reasons that we're studying it together as a brand new church. Uh, is because it's just sort of the, as C.S. Lewis says, it's a letter about mere Christianity. It's a letter about the basics. It's a letter about the ABCs, the A to Z, maybe, of the Christian life, the gospel, and how the gospel plays out in the life of God's people, which we call the church. And so in chapter 1, Paul starts out by talking about how great God's blessings have been towards us in verse 1 through verse 14. And then last week, remember, we looked at Paul's prayer. Paul prays for the people that he's writing to, these Ephesian Christians 2,000 years ago. And he asks that they would know God, that they would know his person, that they would know the hope to which he has called them, that they would know the power, the immeasurable power that's at work in them right now through Christ Jesus. And then we get to chapter 2, and Paul just is kind of still going on about how great and wonderful the gospel is. And that's, again, what we want to look at tonight. So as we get into chapter 2, these first 10 verses, let me just split this up for you into two big chunks, okay? As we think about defining the gospel, okay? The gospel defined, two things you need to know. One, we need to know our condition, and two, we need to know God's provision. Our condition, God's provision. When we think about the core of Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, what you must sort of get if you're going to get Jesus and who he is and what he's done, this is a great way to sort of think about that in your head. Our condition, God's provision. Okay, so let's look first at our condition, especially in verses 1 through 3. We see that. Okay, everybody with me? All right. Let's dive in and get to work. First thing Paul says, he's not one to pull punches, and you were what? Dead. Thank you. Dead. Dead in the trespasses and sins in, what, in which you, you used to walk. So the first thing Paul says about our condition is that apart from knowing Jesus Christ, people that don't have a faith connection to Jesus right now are dead. Now, what does he mean by that? Obviously, he doesn't mean they're like zombies that are like literally like decaying, like the walking dead or something weird like that. They're, they're not <laughs> physically dead. They're breathing, and their hearts are pumping blood throughout their bodies, and they're taking in oxygen, etc. He means that they're, they're spiritually dead. Their, their inner life, their heart, is, is like a corpse. Um, 
And the main thing, I think, to get about our condition, the things we see here in verses 1 through 3, is this. The idea that apart from Jesus, people are dead. That governs everything else that Paul's going to say in the next few verses. You have to get that apart from Jesus, people are dead. Okay? It's kind of like, um, you know, I, I've gotten to the point now where I, like, can't function without this thing. And uh, every now and then, oh, there's a text about the football game. I don't want to look at that. Every now and then, um, every now and then it kind of gets down to where it's red, you know, and it says you have 10% of your battery remaining. And I hate to admit this, but I kind of, I start kind of twitching uncontrollably you know, when that happens. It makes me nervous. It makes me uncomfortable. And I'm like, I've got to charge my phone immediately. And, uh, you know, because my, my phone's going to die if it isn't plugged into a power source, obviously, right? Uh, what Paul's saying here is that our inner hearts, our inner mind, our, our spiritual life, because we've rebelled against God, has been unplugged from its power source. And we're not dying, we're dead. We're an iPhone that's at 0% capacity. Okay, so right away then, Paul sort of hits us with a pretty hard blow. And you might be thinking, maybe you're not thinking, but perhaps you should think. You know, maybe that's a little excessive, Paul. Um, I thought you liked these people. And you tell them they're, they're, they're dead, maybe that, that's a, a little extreme. That's a strong statement for you to lay out for us right there at the outset, right? And, you know, it is. It's a strong statement. But here's what I want us to take from the Bible telling us here and in other places that we are dead apart from Jesus. There's nothing that you or I can do about our condition. You see, the main point that Paul's getting at when he tells us that we're dead is wanting us to see, and you've got to see this if you want to see Christianity. You've got to get this if you want to get Jesus. You cannot help yourself. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot repair yourself. You are broken, and you cannot put the pieces of your inner life, or your outer life for that matter, back together again. You see, Christianity is, in a very real way, anti-self-help. Now, I don't mean by that that it's bad to read self-help books or financial management or leadership stuff. That stuff can be helpful, but those things aren't going to cure you because that's, that's not enough to raise someone from the dead. So when Paul tells you you're dead, you're dead in sin, you're dead in trespasses, he wants you to understand how drastic and severe and radical your situation, your condition, apart from Jesus Christ's intervention in your life is. He tells you you're dead. And then he goes on in the next couple of verses to lay out in a little bit more detail what exactly that looks like. So look at the text again. He says, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Right? So he says, we were following the course of this world. You know, cultural, the cultural tide, so to speak, is, is always flowing downhill. <laughs> it seems like things are getting worse and worse and worse. And Basically, what Paul's saying here is that apart from Jesus Christ, we're going with the tide. We're going with the stream. We're swimming with the flow of our culture. And really, it's a lot easier to do that than to swim against the flow of culture, which is what Christians do, which is what the Bible teaches us to do. It's, it's a lot easier to, to bail on your family than to be married for 50 years. It's a lot easier to be a lazy slouch than to work hard all day and then come home and serve your wife and your kids. It, it's a lot easier to spend all the money you make on yourself 
than it is to give some of it away and to be generous to others and to care for the poor. It's, it's a lot easier to, um, to just sort of uh, lock in when you get home into your TV show or your football game or whatever it is that you do to sort of take the steam off than to relationally engage your husband or your wife. It's easy. It's easy to go with the course of the world. And what Paul's saying here is that apart from Jesus, that's what everyone does. They go downhill with the culture. And the key thing to get is that their consciences aren't at all bothered about this. They're dead in their trespasses. They're following the course of this world. Secondly, he tells us what else it means to be dead. He's getting more drastic here. Follow the course of this world. They follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That means the devil. Um, so not to pull any punches again, does Paul, right? He says, basically, apart from Jesus, your condition is so bad that all of you, to some extent, are under satanic influence. He's not saying you're demon-possessed if you're not a Christian. That's not the case. But he is saying, and Ephesians talks a lot about this. We're going to get more into this later on in the letter. That there are powerful forces at work, invisible forces, the principalities and powers of the air that control things, that have influence over things, that determine things to large degrees. And those forces, those powers, those evil spirits, the devil himself is at work, he says, in the sons of disobedience. Your condition is so bad, apart from Jesus, that Paul calls you dead. He says you're going with the cultural tide and you don't care. You're under the influence to some degree of satanic forces. Things are not looking good, right? And then he keeps going. You're following the prince of the power of the air, who's now at work, we all once, verse 3, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. I could talk a lot about that, but let's just go to the next phrase for sake of time. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay, so Paul's he's pouring in a little overdosage here of the, the words that we find it hard to take in, words that are difficult, words that we don't want to talk about. The devil, death, wrath. Thanks a lot, right? We've got to face the facts. We've got to see our condition. And I want you to just see real quickly there when he says that we were by nature children of wrath. Notice that he says we were by nature children of wrath. It's almost like, you know, the old nurture versus nature argument. Paul's saying uh, you're, you're messed up either way. <laughs> when it comes to nurture, following the course of this world, under the influence of satanic power. When it comes to nature, the day you're born, you're under wrath. Either way, you're not in good shape. Your condition is bleak. Things are dim. Okay? You see that? And notice Paul's not speaking here to one particular people group. He's not writing just to Jews. He's not writing just to Gentiles. Gentiles. He's not saying you're really, really, really messed up. No, he says the rest of mankind. They're in the verse 3, right? The rest of mankind is like this. Everyone, without exception, from the day they were born until the day they place trust in Jesus Christ, is spiritually dead, following the course of this world, under satanic influence, and facing the wrath of a holy and just God. You know, there's a lot of directions we can go at this point, but here's, here's something I want to mention. Um, one thing that most people can agree with in our world today and really that every religion, every philosophy of life, every worldview says something about is that something is wrong. We would all agree with that, right? Something is wrong with the world. Something is wrong with what's external to us. Something is wrong with, with 
our relationships. Something is wrong with us. There's something inside of me that isn't functioning properly. The gears aren't turning in exactly the way the gears should turn. Something is wrong. Now, every religion, every philosophy, every worldview exists in large part to address the problem with various ways. You know, for example, uh, Buddhism says there is something wrong, and the way to fix that is to realize that it's all just an illusion. Your pain is an illusion, and you need to get in touch with nirvana, etc., and realize just basically just become a stoic, and that's that's the solution. Uh, Islam. Another world religion says there is something wrong, and what's wrong is that the pagans have not submitted to Allah. And so when you obey Allah and do his bidding, you're fixing what is wrong in the world. Um, naturalistic evolutionary philosophy. They'll say there, there's something wrong with the world, uh, and oftentimes it, they might say that uh, it's, it's that the strong have not yet devoured the weak, so that uh, the most fit, the most apt, the most able are dominating the world in the way they should be. Or they might say it's that the people that uh, refuse to see the truth and are caught up in myths like religion are still having an influence, and that's what wrong, what's wrong. Everybody says something is wrong. Here's what I want you to get. The Christian diagnosis is much, much more radical than any other. Everyone says something is wrong, but Christianity alone says that things are so bad for you that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself, in your own strength and power, to even begin to fix yourself. You are so broken that you're not just sick, you are dead. Remember The Princess Bride? You ever seen that movie? It's one of my favorites. Uh, I love Miracle Max, Billy Crystal's character. Remember when Wesley is sick, and they think he's dead, and they bring him into Miracle Max, and Miracle Max looks at him and he says, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. <laughs> Wesley here is mostly dead, and then he thinks he says an MLT mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich, where the mutton is nice and lean. You know, I love that scene. Um, there is a big difference. Miracle Max is right. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Most people think that they are just mostly dead. Christianity tells you that you are all dead. You are all dead. There's a famous illustration that preachers have used throughout the centuries that's a terrible illustration in many ways. Uh, it says, you know, the gospel, the message of salvation is basically this. You were in the water uh, after the Titanic has sunk, swimming for your life. A life raft is thrown to you, and all you have to do is reach out and grab a hold of that life raft, and you will be saved. That is not Christianity. It's not. Christianity is you are at the bottom of the Atlantic, your corpse is rotted, and the fish are starting to feed. That's your condition, according to Paul. Here in Ephesians 2, and according to the full teaching of the Old and New Testaments. So if, if you want to get the gospel, if you want to be able to define what that word means, if you want to understand the first thing about Christianity, you've got to get, and frankly, whether we like it or not, I don't like this, but we've got to get it. Our condition is one of death. It's one of utter helplessness. Okay? So let's move on then. Paul talks very bluntly, very radically there about our condition. You were dead. Before you knew Jesus, you walked according to the course of this world, right? Satan has some control over you. He's still at work now in the sons of disobedience. You all once lived in the passions of your flesh. You're by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But, verse 4, thank God Ephesians just doesn't end like Paul didn't kill over and the pen just starts going this way. 
after verse 3 of chapter 2. Thank God there's a but in verse 4. But God. Great, great text. Great, great verse. But God, being, not, not, I love Paul here, not just being merciful, being rich in mercy. What a, you know, Paul's language is great. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love. He doesn't just say because he loved you. Because of, it's like he's straining language. Because of the great love with which he loved you, saved you. By grace you have been saved. So two things we want to talk about here. We've looked at our condition. Now I want to show you God's provision. Two things about it. Okay, two things about God's provision. I want to show you why God saves and how God saves. Why God saves and how God saves. People like you and like me and like everyone that you know who apart from Jesus are in the condition that he's described in verses 1 through 3. First of all, why does God save you? If God saves people, why does he do it? Verse 4. It's because God is rich in mercy and because his love towards us is very great. Listen, the reason that God saves anyone on this planet, anyone throughout the course of human history, is because God loves to save. God does not save people because they deserve it. God, listen, God does not save people because in even a smidgen fraction of a percentile they've done something to merit his favor. God does not save people because he looks down from his lofty perch in heaven and says that person truly cares about others. That person really is spiritual. That person has never missed a Sunday of church as long as they've lived. I love that person. No, no, no. God saves according to Paul and according to the teaching of the Bible because God loves to save. God saves because God is a God of love. God saves you because God is merciful. God saves you because God is kind. Now, most of you are probably thinking, amen, that sounds great, Pastor Luke, preach on, but you do not believe that. You want to know why I know you don't believe it? It's because deep in your hearts and deep in my heart, we think we are better than other people. It's different types of people, and we do it in different ways. We're never going to say those things in this enlightened age, but we subtly think them. You don't believe that because maybe you, you sometimes think you're better than other people, and maybe sometimes you think you're so much worse than other people that God would never really love me. Maybe the idea of a father loving his children is so foreign to you given the past that you're coming out of, that the idea of a heavenly father loving earthly children who run away from him and try to slap him in the face and rebel against him is just totally inconceivable and incalculable. Maybe that's why you don't believe this. But if you believe this, if I believed it every day, all the time, our lives would be different. If we really believe that it's by grace that we have been saved, and the only reason God saves us is because God is a God of love. It's not because we've been so bad. It's not because we've been so good. It's not because of anything we've done. It's because of what God, in his character and in his wisdom, loves to do. And things would change in our lives. Why does God save you? God saves you because God loves people. You know, the best human example that I can come up with is the example of a parent with his kids or her kids. I was watching a, a preview of this show. You might have seen it. Uh, I haven't seen the show, but I've seen the commercials, and I've read a little bit about it. It's called Friday Night Tykes. Have you heard of this? Friday Night Tykes. 
to play on Friday Night Lights, which is a great show. But Friday Night Tights is about like peewee football leagues and the parents who rule these peewee football leagues. And just in the previews, it's like sickening and scary. And I kind of see a little bit of that in my own heart and kind of get worried about my children as they get older. But, you know, it's, it's like eight-year-old kids, seven-year-old kids out there playing football and the parents are just going ballistic. It's the Super Bowl to these parents. They're yelling, getting in kids' faces, screaming. You know, they're, they're thinking about their kids as if they're sort of they're projecting their, old, their, old, their own failed athletic careers on their six-year-old who's trying to learn how to receive a handoff. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. That, that's, that's oftentimes the way we think when we think about the way a father or a mother loves. We don't, we don't love well. But God is not like that. He's not like the parents in Friday Night Tykes. He's a God of infinite love who is going to love you no matter what. And that's the only reason that any of us can ever have our condition reversed. Why does God save? God saves because, according to Paul, he's rich in mercy and he loves us very well. He loves us greatly. So how does God save? This is the last thing, next few verses. How does God save? We've seen our condition, God's provision, he provides for us, he gives us salvation because that's something he loves to do because he's merciful and loving. And then verse 5, verse 6 begin to talk about how God has done this. And this is really the center point of Christianity. There's a lot of things Christians disagree about. This is something that Christians don't disagree about. You can disagree about a lot of things in Christianity. A lot of secondary issues. This issue is primary. This is, this is sort of the core. This is what you must get if you want to get Christianity. The way God saves is through the person of Jesus. Look at what Paul says, beginning in verse 5. When we were dead, repeating again our condition, when we were dead in our trespasses, God, being the subject there, made us alive together with Jesus. And then he can't help himself. He just throws this in. By grace you have been saved. And... Verse 6, raised us up with Jesus. Good. And seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. What are the tenses of those verbs? Past tense. The way God saves is by connecting you in your deadness, in your peril, in your lost condition to the work of Jesus 2,000 years ago in space and time in the Middle East in Jerusalem, dying on a cross and being raised from the dead. Paul is saying that when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, God connects you in a real way, in a vital way, to Jesus. So that what Jesus experienced in his death and in his new life, you also, when you're connected to him, experience now. And you experience it in such a real way in such a fundamentally life-altering way that Paul, Paul can say, you have been raised. You are now seated, past tense, with Jesus in the heavenlies. Do you feel seated with Jesus in the heavenlies? I don't. But Paul says here that you are. Your connection to Jesus, he's saying, by faith, is so secure that what Jesus experienced, you have experienced, both in death and in resurrection. And that's how God saves. Let me work that out for you a little bit more. You died with Jesus. That's not explicit here, but it's implied because if Jesus was raised, then Jesus died. Paul tells us explicitly in Romans 6 that when Jesus died, you died. You died to sin. 
You die to these powers that he's talking about in verses 2 and 3. You die to your former way of living. You are a new person. And he raised you up with him. You have right now, through faith, connecting to Jesus, new life, new hope, a complete new lease on everything that you've known. So when God saves, the way he does it is by connecting you to what happened to Jesus. Uh, some of you, I think I've told this to you already, which is kind of weird, but I, uh, along with being a good speller, uh, I was pretty decent at the three-legged race when I was in fourth. This is athletic prowess on display here, spelling in the three-legged race. Um, the key to the three-legged race is that you are in sync with your partner. You know, if one person's stepping out of sync with the other person, it's going to get ugly quick. You know, you're going to be eating the dirt. The good three-legged race team, and there's books that have been written about this, I'm sure. Um, they're in perfect sync. Their, their connection is fluid so that they can move in tandem, in motion together. In a, in a, I'm sure. This should be an Olympic sport, I'm convinced. The three-legged race should be an Olympic sport because it's so beautiful to watch unfold. This is an exaggeration, I know. But the point is that you're so connected to Jesus you're so connected to him that your experience with him is so fluid that Paul can say in very real ways that what happened to Jesus has happened to you. And he can, he can use it in the past tense. So Christianity tells you, you you have no hope. You're dead. You're lost. And you can't fix yourself. But God in Jesus has come to do the fixing for you. He's done it by getting people connected to Jesus, who's the one person that ever lived that didn't ever sin, that wasn't by nature a child of wrath, that wasn't under the sway of the devil, but rejected the devil. Jesus lived a perfect life. And when you get connected to Jesus, God doesn't see your messed up life. He sees Jesus' perfect life. Jesus died a death, paying for your sin. And so when you die, God's not going to judge you for your own sins, which are many. He's going to look at Jesus because you're connected to Jesus and his death and see that Jesus never committed sin. Therefore, he's innocent. He's righteous. He's vindicated. And he's going to say, you're vindicated. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And when you get connected to Jesus, you too are raised from the dead. Not just in the future, although that's going to happen, but right now. Right now, you have a new life. Jesus is right now in the heavenly places with God waiting to return. And you, Paul says, right now in a certain sense, in your inner being, are with Jesus in the heavenly places. That's how certain it is when you get connected with him. The question is, how does this connection take place? If our condition is as bad as Paul says it is, as Christianity says it is, and if the solution is that fluid and that beautiful Jesus, how do you get connected to him? And that's where people begin to go this way and that way. But Paul's very clear here. The only way to ever get connected to Jesus is by faith. It's not verse 8 by, by doing, verse 9. It's not a result of works that gets you tied, that makes Jesus your three-legged race partner, that connects you to him. It's, it's faith alone. Faith is what connects you to Jesus. And so what is faith? In this context, faith is not a work. That's the whole point. Faith is not something that you do in order to merit connecting yourself to him. Faith is merely believing that what you're reading here, what you're hearing here is true. It's merely receiving what Jesus has already done for you in his life, death, and resurrection. That's all it is. Faith is like, a, it's like this cup of water. Faith is the cup. Faith is a receptacle. 
Faith's sole purpose is to connect you to Jesus. Just like this cup's sole purpose is to connect this water to my parched throat. <coughs> and then choke me on it. <coughs> That's why you never use props in sermons. <coughs> That's our eighth core value. You never use props. Um, so faith is a faith is something that it's it's merely the act of receiving. The act of receiving what Jesus has already accomplished. Okay? So the final question that God's judging me for that. <laughs> That's not the gospel. No the final question is, uh, do you have faith? Most of you do. I'm sure of that. You've placed your faith in Jesus. You believe that these things are true, that he forgives your sins and his death, that he gives you new life and his resurrection. But I'm, I may be asking it in a more fundamental sense for your daily life. Do you have faith on Monday when you're not coming to church? Do you have faith when you don't have your pastor staring right you, you right in the eye and asking you that question? Do you have faith when things go really badly in your week? Do you have faith when your friend dies? Do you have faith when your marriage falls apart? Or do you revert back to thinking, I've got to get this fixed myself? Faith is merely looking away from yourself to Jesus. That's why Christianity is not just news. It's good news. It's news. It is news that Jesus... A man 2,000 years ago died and then was raised again from the dead and is still alive. That's news. The reason it's good is because all you have to do to receive the benefits of what Jesus did is believe it. That's why it's good. But we, because we're stupid when we sin, tend to think that we have to do something more. And we forget our condition and God's provision. So do you believe the gospel? The gospel is what we've just been explaining here to you believe it? Do you feel its, its power and its, its sweetness right now? As you think about how far short you've fallen and all the bad things you've done and all the good things you've tried to do but haven't quite pulled off, do you think about how sweet it is that none of those things are going to be of any account when God looks at your life at the end of the day? Isn't it sweet? Isn't it sweet that all you have to do is believe this? That's it. Literally, that's all. You just have to believe it. You don't have to do anything. That's how much God loves you. You do not have to work to earn God's love. Man, that's good news. Because you can't do it. Gosh, that, that just kind of lifts a weight for me. You don't have to do it. You just have to believe that Jesus has done it. And when you believe that, it's not kind of just like this thing you stick in your back pocket and move on with life. Verse 10, I wish we had time. Maybe I'll preach on verse 10 next week. It talks about how you become the workmanship of God. Things begin to alter in your life. You experience renewal. You experience change. There's so much to unpack there. Maybe we'll do that next week. But when we think about defining the gospel, we must see our condition. You've got to get the bad news. And then you get to see God's provision. The good news is that God has chosen because of his great love to save. And the way he's done that is through Jesus. All you've got to do is believe it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that uh, the gospel is true. That's amazing. Uh, we thank you that as we just, most of us have heard it many times, but as we reflect again on how, it, how it's defined here in the second chapter of Ephesians, we, um, we're stunned, Lord, at your grace to us, at your love for us. As I look at my life, I know that 
I fall far, far short of your glory, and I'm amazed that you love me as much as you say you do in the Bible, and frankly, a lot of the time, I just don't believe that that's the case. And so, Father, give me faith to believe it. Help me to trust you at your word. Help me to stop looking at myself and looking to Jesus and his righteousness and beauty and perfection. And help all of us to do that. Help us as a church to be a church where we believe that this gospel changes everything. Help us to be a church that doesn't look to ourselves and our own achievements and our own merits or at our own failures and shortcomings, but to be a church that looks solely to Jesus in joyful adoration and worship. Lord, we need your spirit for that to take place. Even though we believe this message, we stray away from it, Lord. We turn to the right and to the left and try to do things on our own. And so, Father, send the spirit to come and guide us into all truth as you've promised he will do. And as we rise again to sing to you, we bless your name and praise you for your great salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and sing. Let's respond to his wonderful mercy to us by singing.